0: it is a psalm it says the inscription says to the choir master a psalm of david which tells us that it's for the assembly while it's an individual lament psalm it is to be sung in the assembly so we we don't hide and, and, and pull away in times of distress but we actually move to the assembly and we sing and express our sorrow to the Lord together. So let us let me read Psalm 13, and if you want to just bow your head and close your eyes and listen, that's fine, or, or just listen as I read Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because He has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray together. For we say with David, How long, O Lord? We we say that when we see our own sin... When we see the effects of sin and the effects of the curse all around us, God, and in us, we see it individually, we have our own, we bring our own sorrows in here today, we bring our own hurts, our own diseases, our own conflicts, our own losses, and we just ask, Lord, how long, how long? And, and and corporately, we have griefs as a church, and 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 longings as a church that are unfulfilled, and 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 so we say, "How long?" And and then nationally, we we see this what seems to just be a bleak outlook politically and socially and morally and religiously, and and all of the 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 storms that just seem to be brewing. God, uh, uh, indifference towards evil, even a celebration of it, and a And, and hatred really of good and we just say, how long, Lord? How, we see it beyond our borders, God, and around the world with, with wars and disease and disasters and terrorism. How long? We've, we've, we've cheered our hearts even that question with the song we just sang. Lord, you, you will return. We pray that you would hasten that day. We say Come, Lord Jesus, but god I, I pray that in in light of the realities, in light of the the, the the sorrows and the losses that are all around us God, I pray that that we wouldn 't turn in on ourselves, but we would we would still hope in you, God, and that even as we 've been looking at with, uh, over the last couple of weeks in our world missions conference god that, 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 that the fact that you that you tarry that you 're patient that you haven 't returned yet, God, that would grow in us just this, this, this passion to go and to go and to go with the gospel of jesus christ and go and make disciples of all nations and as we get to just kind of land on this little slice of redemptive of redemptive history and ruth uh this week and in the next several weeks god i pray that we will we'll have eyes to see how it fits in this larger mission that you're on of of, of reconciling people to yourself and so, God, may we see ourselves aligned with that mission that you're on. You were on in Ruth. You are on today. And, and I, I thank you for where we've been over the last couple of weeks. I thank you for the exhortations. I thank you for the just increased and new awareness of what's going on in the world. I thank you for the reports from our missionaries and hearing how, how you're working in different places and, and hearing how, how their struggle but, but I, and, and so I pray, God, that you would, you would continue to change us, that you would keep us stirred up for this cause. And so continue to move us out, Lord. Move us out around the nations. Move us out, out our front door, across the street. And, and Father, I, I, I do thank you for this nation. And as we're here getting close to this election on Tuesday, we, we just ask for mercy. We ask for mercy. You've shown us mercy before as a nation. And with Veterans Day coming up, we're deeply mindful of that. And we thank you for our nation's veterans. We are grateful for their faithful service in defending and preserving the freedom that we enjoy in this land. We're thankful for those who've served during times of peace. And they stood ready, bravely awaiting that call of for duty. And we're grateful for those who served during times of unrest and and, and enduring conflict and bearing physical and emotional and spiritual wounds from war. So we ask, God, that you would bless these, bless our veterans, heal their wounds, give them peace that's only found in Jesus Christ. So we thank you for them. We thank you for those of generations past. We thank you for those in our own generation today. And we, we ask, Lord, that 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 we would never forget what our country has asked of them and what they have given in return. So thank you. But we, we, we continue to ask, God, as you have shown it, we ask for mercy. I pray for our brother Taylor in a very practical way that you would give mercy to him as he's as he's trying to get back from California and have him dislocated the hip and trying to get home. I pray that you would work it out for him to be home tomorrow and And that his recovery will be, um, will be quick, Lord. Help us now, Lord, as we, as we look into this portion of the word, that you would give, give comfort to our anxious hearts today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are starting a new series today in the book of Ruth. And if you're not there again, turn to Ruth chapter one, early on in the Old Testament, after the book of Judges. Um, I I love this story, (laughs) I do, and I know many of you do too, Um, this is um, special, it's just a great piece of literature in itself, but obviously the message contained in it that it's communicating is very powerful, and uh, this has been called by some the, the perfect story, or the precious jewel of the Old Testament. One is called the, the veritable masterpiece of the storyteller's art. This is the book of Ruth. This is not a book reserved for women's Bible studies alone. Mrs. Dowell was expressing her gratitude that we were doing this on a Sunday morning because it's usually consigned to uh, women's studies. This is a well-crafted true story for all of us. And in reality, Ruth is not the main character. It's God, as we'll see. He is the one that we want to see, and He is the one working through this book. And it's a timely place for us to be, and I think that will be evident right away in chapter 1. It's a story of God giving beauty for ashes. That's the theme that we're going to be working with through this series, beauty for ashes. But it starts in an ash heap. That's that's where it begins, in this very dark beginning. So Ruth chapter 1, I want to just read the first five verses and then look at it together. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And the man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That's all we're covering today. William was born sickly. He lived his whole life in a state of poor and very fragile health. But as a young boy, there was great comfort to William in the, in, in the form of his mother. His mother loved him deeply, cared for him, helped him in his fragile state. But there was this dark and frowning providence that entered into young William's life at the age of six. Now, I have a six-year-old, and so I am this Troubles me to think. But his his mother died, tragically. And William's father was not able to really cope with the death of his wife and wasn't able to cope with the, the reality of caring for this sickly boy. And so William for his whole life heard from his father that he was a burden and that he was unwanted. And he felt this pain deeply in his soul and it... And, 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 and it, it, of being unloved by his father. So needless to say, as, as William grew up, he was a very troubled and unsettled young man. And, and that, that mixed with all of his physical challenges. And so when he entered young adulthood, though, he had ambitions to become a, a lawyer, an attorney. And so he was able to go to law school. And he did very well in law school. But as as the time came to take his bar exam, he became... Very anxious, and this weakly constituted young man just became just despairing and 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 just shaken by the anxiety of taking this exam so to the point where he attempted suicide. And so, at that time in William's day, when someone attempted suicide, they were institutionalized immediately, and so they were he was put in an insane asylum, and oftentimes they would stay there the rest of their lives, and they only got worse in their state and in their condition, so it seemed that William's life was a complete tragedy. Just this loss. Physical challenges, poor health, mentally, emotionally weak, lost his mother, unloved by his father. We might look at his tragic life and say, where in the world was God in the in the midst of this man's darkness? But God was at work. He was at work, and God was orchestrating each and everything that happened, each and every event in William's life, he was orchestrating it, so that after he was in the asylum for two years, William heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ shone on William's heart, and he believed, he was saved, and his life was instantly changed. And he was released from the asylum. Now, even as a believer, William continued to struggle at times with with despair, at times very acutely and depression. But God had changed him. There was a hope that that never died, and, and God used him in wonderful ways he, he went on to write many hymns that we sing in the church often and and, and, and we've sung for the last 200 years of the church. And so his most famous hymn is, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath his blood, whose all their guilty stains. But you know, probably some of you now, we're talking about William Cooper. William Cooper, but, but he left us another hymn and the words that most of you probably recognize, and these are these are beautiful words that are a reflection back on those dark and frowning providences of his earlier years and how God was at work. And so just listen to the words of this hymn. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain but God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. What sustains you? in the dark and the frowning providences of your life? What sustains you when your spouse leaves you or is unfaithful to you? What sustains you when your child dies? What sustains you when a fire, a house fire takes every earthly possession you have? What what, what sustains you when your employer comes to you and because of cutbacks, he says, you no longer have a job here? What sustains you when you get the dreaded news from your doctor? What sustains you when you have precious relationships in a family or friendships that deteriorate and fall apart? and Those relationships are cut off. The book of Ruth meets us right there. This is a book of encouragement for weary people. This is a book for people who want a realistic faith. When the wheels of life just come off. And and, and it's about God who, who brings beauty out of ashes. Listen, I if you can't tell in my voice already, I have big hopes for this study. I have big prayers, big sweeping prayers for my own life and for us as a church my prayer is that over the next 6 weeks God would use this precious story this 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 beautiful book it and, and that he would change us that he would change our hearts that he would change our perspective on God that he would change even our vocabulary that he would shape us because Ruth is a story of this this, that God's providence in, 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 in on display for us and we, we hear that word providence that's not a word we often use today I don't think teenagers are texting providence to one another, that probably doesn't show up I don't think there's a shortened version of that that they all recognize but in a sense that's to our shame now, our culture has other words that we prefer over providence, words like luck and chance and fortune and fate and Words like that, but those words really don't fit into the Christian worldview or Christian vocabulary. Those are the world's ways of dealing with life's ups and downs but but Ruth is a story of God's providence and the the overarching summary of this book would be and this is on the screen Ruth is a story about God arranging circumstances that seem utterly hopeless and ordering them into his perfect plan for his glory and our good he makes beauty from ashes there are a couple historic statements and theological statements that 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 address God's providence. And both of these that I'm going to read, there are others, but both of these are from the 16th century. And I, these will be on the screen. You know, don't try to write these all down. But the first thing I want to read is from the Belgic Confession. This is again, 16th century. It says, Statement of Faith. And the 13th article in this statement is on the doctrine of God's providence. And listen to how they describe this. I think this is helpful. It says, We believe that the same God, after He had created all things, did not forsake them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that He rules and governs them according to His holy will, so that nothing happens in this world without His appointment. Nevertheless, God is neither the author of, nor can He be charged with, the sins which are committed. And it goes further. But don't you know they wrestled over the wording of that that statement? You get to that word, appointment. Appointment. You you see the impact of what that's saying. Nothing happens. Nothing happens without God's appointment. And another statement, more familiar, Heidelberg Catechism that some of you maybe use even in your own home. And 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 so I'll read the. I want us to read the the answer together. I'll read the question, and I want us to read the answer together. And this will be on the screen. And the question, in the twenty seventh question, and this is: What do you understand by the providence of God? Together, let's read this. God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. All things, not by chance, by His fatherly hand. And so as we enter into the book of Ruth today, we're going to be seeing, we'll call these dark, and as Cal Cooper says, frowning providences. We're going to see things that God appoints, which seem to indicate that He must be frowning. But we'll soon see, even starting next week, that there is a hidden smile of God behind these frowning providences. And so the book of Ruth opens with five verses that we just read, and it's this quick introduction. And so the 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 book is kind of broken up into four sections, each by the four chapters, but this these first five verses cover this long period of time, and the other chapters are going to be very, very concise in the amount of time that they're recording. But we have this quick, fast introduction background of this incredible story and so what i want to point out out to you this morning are these six dark and frowning providences that we see in these opening verses six dark and frowning providences the first one is this first one we see is this unstable social and political climate This is God's providence. An unstable and really evil social and political climate. Now already you can see this passage has zero relevance to our lives, don't you? Um, Now the story takes place during the period of the judges about 1380, 1040 BC and that 300 plus year period. And so you had Moses... With the exodus and the, the law and the wilderness wanderings. And they got right up to the edge of the promised land. But they couldn't pass on. That generation wasn't allowed to enter. So Joshua is the one that God uses to enter the promised land. And after Joshua dies, then you have the period of judges all the way up to the kings and King Saul. And so that's the period we're talking about. You remember there's two important things that, that, that Joshua's leadership is really marked by. The first, as I mentioned already, is the conquest of the land. So all the enemies of of the promised land are driven out of Canaan. And then secondly, the settlement of the land, where you have the tribes beginning to settle in, in God's promised land as the land is divided up. So you would think, after all that God has done for His people... Bringing them out of Egypt, providing for all their needs in the wilderness, giving them this land flowing with milk and honey, that that these the, that God's people would be there all in with the Lord, putting their hope and trust only in Him, ready to live for Him. That's not quite what you see. You you would think that as Joshua gives his farewell sermon on the day before his death, and he says he says, uh, choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord that all the people would say, Amen! Yes, we will too. And they live that out. But it's not the case. The period of Judges is, is one that is marked by just spiritual apostasy and moral anarchy. It's a dark, dark period in Israel's history. They barely have their boxes unpacked from settling the land and they're already chasing after idols. They're pursuing the gods of the Canaanites and the Philistines and all the surrounding nations. And so God, in order to discipline His people and bring them back, He, he, he raises up an enemy nation to come and to oppress them. And then, and then the people are, are, are just overcome with this and they're tired of the oppression, so they, they cry out to God for relief, for help. And so God then raises up a deliverer, a judge, and don't think... Judicial guy in a robe sitting on a, on a on the bench. That's not it. He's a, he's a warrior. He's a military deliverer. He's got a sword in his hand. So he raises up a judge to deliver them. And so you say, okay. Well now, now they've learned their lesson. They're in the land. They've gone through this cycle of disobedience. And God's delivered them. They cry out to God. God delivers them. So now they got it. Wrong. Because they that generation dies off. And the next generation does the exact same thing. They go through the same cycle. They're worshipping foreign gods. God sends pagan nation to come and oppress them. They cry out to God for relief. God raises up a judge to deliver them. And on and on that cycle goes for over 300 years. That's the period of Judges. If you, if you have your Bible open to Ruth, and I hope you do, just turn back one page. That's how it is in mine. To the very last verse of the book of Judges. And you get to see what's really a summary of this period in, in Israel's history. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's it. Spiritual apostasy, social anarchy. Now our day and time is certainly not just like the period of Judges. We are not Israel. We are, we are not. We don't have invading nations attacking us in every generation and God raising up these these military warriors to, to, to drive them out from our borders. That's not our situation, but spiritual apostasy, moral, social anarchy, they are certainly on the rise in our day, in our nation and around the world. But here's the thing I want you to see, and this is where we're getting... So the rubber meets the road here. In the day of the judges, a day of horrendous moral corruption, spiritual, religious apostasy, God was still the sovereign ruler of all things. That definition that we read from the Belgian Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, it it still stood up. In our day, no matter what the results are of Tuesday's election, God is still reigning. He is still on his throne. God in His providence, He establishes governments and He brings them low. He sets up kings and kingdoms and and wipes them out. He is over all things. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21, verses on the screen. He God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. It's clear from Daniel. It's clear from Paul in Romans thirteen. It's clear from Job chapter twelve, verse thirteen to twenty-one that God appointed the time of the judges. This is, he, he's, this is not this is not the nation spiraling out of control without God's God's hands at the at the wheel. He's over this. It was God who, in the midst of what looked like total chaos, was moving His invisible hand of providence, governing, controlling. people, all things. So, say in our own context, God appointed our 44th president of the United States, Barack Obama. And no candidate in this election will become the 45th president of the United States without God's appointment. That's not just true of this nation at this time. Romans 13 says that there is no authority ever at any time in any nation, in any place except that that which is appointed by the hand of God. Now you do a quick split second scan of history, and you probably choke on that truth a little bit. I do. But if we don't have room in our theology for a God who appoints both good leaders and and wicked leaders, then we got to go back to what the Scriptures say. This does not mean we just throw up our hands and say, well... Just kinda robots and we don't it's just it's just a script that we're working from. No, if you were living in the times of judges, you wouldn't say, Oh well, it's anarchy. Ah, guess I'll just jump in and go with it. Guess we just have to live with it. No. No, that's not it at all. That's not that shouldn't be our response today. We we pray. And you repent. And you pray. And you work for change, and you pray and you work hard for reform, and you pray and you plead with leaders to change to repent to seek wisdom, and you pray and you vote and you pray. This is not passivity, and as we 're going to see god 's providence working throughout the book of ruth it 's not that people are passive, no, there is obedience, and there is there is working and laboring and and and, and strategizing, but yet God is overall that's a that's a that's a, a, something we're never going to be able to fully reconcile in our, in our minds until we get to glory. But we need to understand that those who are over us are by divine appointment from God. And so that His providence extends not only to the good rulers, but also to the Nero's, and to the Linens, and the Pulpots. But that's not the only dark and frowning providence that, that Naomi is under and... And Ruth, in a sense. That's not the only kind of dark and frowning providence that you were probably under this morning either. So there's, there's another one that we see here in the first verses. Of one. The second one is a natural disaster. Famine. Famine. What's the thin line between famine and abundant harvests? Rain. Rain in the right quantity at the right time. That's it. And who controls the weather? God. So there's famine in the land because God has shut the spigot off in the heavens. And he's 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 it's not raining over Bethlehem and over Judah. And we know this is the, the disciplinary hand of God. And we can be pretty certain of that. Because this family that we're going to see, they only have to go 50 miles to the east. And there are all kinds of crops. There is plenty of rain. So this is a very localized uh, famine from the hand of God. And so we, we know God has this power. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 23 and 24. God promises Israel that if they disobey that He will send famine and pestilence, which is epidemic disease and sword. God, God can do this. In 1 Kings 17, this prophet comes out of nowhere and says to Ahab, Three years, buddy, no rain. Three years, which means what? Drought, which means what? Famine. Now, I know we're talking about our Georgia drought here, and we're freaking out over, you know, a couple months with no rain, an eight-inch deficit and all of that, and so we have watering restrictions, and we can't wash our car as often as we'd like to, and, and, and maybe we can't water our petunias like we want to, and that kind of a thing, I mean, we, we realize that, that we really don't know this. Three years. No rain. God is able to do that. Psalm 105 verse 16. As the psalmist is recounting God's dealings with his people. He said God summoned a famine. Like he just called famine here. He summoned a famine on the land. And he broke all the supply of bread. Cut off the supply line. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, prophets over and over again, God says, I will send famine and pestilence and destruction if you disobey. So, listen though, we, we see widespread famine in our own day as well, don't we? It's not just a thing of the past. I know in our nation we're privileged to enjoy plenty. But you, you, can, you can see children's faces on television who are malnourished and who are living in places of drought and of famine. And of course we want to say, God has nothing to do with that. And we see, we see disasters, other natural disasters, earthquakes and hurricanes and floods and tornadoes and volcanoes and, and tsunamis. And we desperately want to exonerate God from having any involvement in those things, in destruction and death. But if God, listen, if God has absolutely nothing to do with those, who does? Who does? Either the devil's a lot bigger than the Bible says he is and Satan and God are in this kind of dualistic cosmic boxing match, just duking it out. Or, or the God who is both all-powerful and good. He's, he's appointing natural disasters for his own purposes according to his good and holy will. That he has is, he is wrought in deep and unfathomable minds of skill, as Cooper says. The same God who opens the heavens so that it rains is the same God who can shut them off so that there's drought and famine. And he does it all, as we say, without any sin. So we see we see these two dark and frowning providences, but we go further. So we see the crumbling culture, the society, and what it was like to live under that. We see this devastating famine. And so this is a second providence of God that's dark and it's difficult, but there's more. Verse into verse one and a man of Bethlehem, you know that city. A little town of Bethlehem. Leads house of bread. And how ironic, the, the bread basket of Judah has no bread. See, if there was one place you think, well, we'll be okay, through any famine, it's Bethlehem, no bread, God is able. So, but, but it's also, we see that word Bethlehem, and we, we know, we're, we, you're a Bible student, you're a Bible reader, you know that word Bethlehem, it's like a neon flashing sign. Messiah, Messiah, it's coming. But a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, which means, my God is king. And the name of his wife, Naomi, which means pleasant or beautiful. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, which weak, sick, and then wasting away or pining. Great names for boys, strapping young men, I'm sure. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. So the, the next dark and frowning providence it is when Naomi's husband makes a bad choice. And notice the decision at first. It was to sojourn in Moab. That's what the text says. That's temporary. It's like a work visa. But they ended up remaining there, the text says. They put down roots for over ten years, as we'll see. This is this is the third dark and frowning providence that we see in these opening verses. This bad decision for Naomi it was another person's bad decision, her husband's, but but she suffered for it. Now maybe she did have some say in the decision. We're not really told, but as it looks, it seems like this is something Elimelech decided for the family, and she went with it. Leaving the promised promised land for Moab during this period of famine was. Was the wrong move. It was. This isn't like relocating from Atlanta to Chicago to find better work. Or even from Atlanta to Budapest or somewhere around the world. That's not it at all. We can, you can, you and I can serve the Lord anywhere. We, we're under, we're in this dispensation. But well, that's, any of those are options. These were God's chosen people. They were given this promised land as an inheritance. Their, their livelihood, their blessing, everything was tied to this land. And, and, and so it's, it's different. And, and most of the Ephrathites, they stay in Judah. Elimelech and his family, they're the oddballs for leaving. We know this because, uh, it's, it's, well, so we see clearly, it's not like they had to either leave or die. It wasn't that severe of a famine because a lot of people stayed. When Naomi gets back, we'll see this next week, she's the talk of the town. Everybody saw her leave. They They stayed. Everybody saw her come back and saw how changed she is. But they chose to leave. Elimelech made a bad decision. Famine struck and Mr. My God is King says, you know what? I think I'd have better luck in another king's land. And so he goes to Moab, packs his bags, takes his family out of the land that God promised to bless and to prosper him. He goes to this pagan, idolatrous land of Moab, about 50 miles to the east. And we're thinking, what are you doing? What are you thinking? But we've said, this is a dark and frowning providence. Somehow, God is even in this. But let me put this in here, and this has been in the background of everything I've said so far, and, and I want to emphasize it here. We need to say something about moral accountability. These are not contradictory. Even though we say this is a bad, this bad decision of Elimelech is ultimately a part of the purpose and counsel of God, Elimelech still bears responsibility before the Lord for his decision. You ask, how can that be? How can God ultimately be the one responsible and, and, and the cause of his family to go from, to Moab? And yet Elimelech is still responsible before the Lord for that decision. There's a, there's a passage, if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and we see there are other passages we go to as well, but I think this is the this is the fullest and finest statement on this on this question. Acts chapter two verse twenty three, and then you can flip over to Acts chapter four verses twenty seven to twenty eight. But this is Peter's preaching there on Pentecost, and 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 if you put these two passages together, Acts two twenty three, Acts four twenty seven to twenty eight, you see the religious leaders made a decision to put Jesus to death. They did. They, they conspired to crucify to have Christ killed. Herod made a decision to put Jesus to death. Pilate made a decision to put Jesus to death. The crowds are shouting for Jesus to be crucified. Was this a wrong moral choice on their part? Uh, yes. This is the most heinous moral choice that's ever been made in the history of the universe. To, to crucify the very Son of God. And they you, you better believe they will be held accountable for that that decision to, 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 to plan for Christ's death. But we also know, according to these texts, that each of those decisions was in some way foreordained by God in eternity past. In verse 23 of chapter 2, it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And in 428, they were doing whatever God's hand and his plan had predestined to take place so so it doesn't it doesn't take away moral responsibility to say that God was providentially ruling even over these wrong decisions so back to Ruth just because we say again Elimelech made a bad decision and that God was going to use that decision for good does not exonerate him from moral responsibility but it, but it is this dark and frowning providence of a bad decision Now some of you know what it is to live with that. The frowning providence of a bad decision. Maybe yours, maybe someone else's. Maybe your parents. Maybe your spouse's. There are consequences that linger that you still deal with today. And if you are in Christ, you are not identified by those consequences. You hear me? If you are a child of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not angry at you. He's not bitter and stewing over some past decision and continuing to hold that against you. And yeah, I forgive you, but I'm going to keep bringing it up. And I'm going to no. You are cleansed. You are washed. You are forgiven. You are covered, and you are dressed in the robes of righteousness of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's not it? But there are still, brothers and sisters, there can be consequences that linger. It doesn't affect your standing before the Lord, but there can be dark and frowning providences that come from decisions. And, and we can, we can, they can hide, as it were, the smiling face of God for a period. And you may be under that right now. But it can get worse. And it does get worse for Naomi. We see a, 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 another... Providence. Verse three, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. This is the fourth dark, frowning providence in these verses. Death strikes close. Takes her husband. The Jewish rabbis historically believed that Elimelech died because of God's just justice, his judgment for leaving the promised land. Now we're not told that specifically is the case. But what we do know is this. It is God who holds the power over life and death. And it's and, and and He is the one who numbers our days. This is what this teaches us. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 39. It's on the screen. See now that I, even I, am He. And there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. You can go to Psalm 139, verse 16, that that, that God foreordained each one of our days. Or Job 14, 5, God has numbered numbered our days, determined the number of them. So So I have good news and bad news for you with this truth and with this reality. The good news is that you will not die one single day before God has appointed for you to die. It's not like He's going to be kind of looking the other way and some bus is going to come by and take you out and say, oh, I didn't see that coming. No. The bad news is, is you will not live one single day longer than God has appointed for you to live. He has appointed our days. He has the power of life and death in His hands and He dispenses it as He wills. And so whether you live to be 99 years old or 40 years old or 2 years old or you die in the womb, God has appointed those days in some mysterious way. But we do see death as painful, don't we? It is. It's loss. And we see it in the case of Naomi, with the death of her husband. It's vicious. It's ugly. Eh. And Now, we as Christians, we rejoice that the sting of death has been dealt with and has been removed by Christ's death and His resurrection, but death is still an enemy. It's an intruder. It's intruded into all of our lives in different ways. There's not a person here, with the exception of maybe a really young child, who who has escaped and hasn't experienced the dark and frowning providence of death that strikes close. But some of the circumstances surrounding death are darker than others. Some of the timing of the death, it just shakes you to the core. And sometimes the frequency just seems like death after death after death of those close to you. It, just is, it, can, it can shake us. And maybe you're still shaken. You're being shaken now. I know we have people in our flock. I, I don't... Um, but but this is this is and Naomi felt the pain of that dark and frowning providence, losing her husband, and this is something again we all, all deal with as well. So there's a we go on another another dark providence, and I don't know if the next one brought Naomi any joy or not. I, I I don't know what her reaction to this was, but it but the next one is this bad decision that is made by her two sons. Verse four, these boys they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, which means neck. I don't know if that's derogatory, stiff neck, stubborn, or if the neck was considered a thing of beauty, and so it's complimentary. But And the name of the other, Ruth, which means friendship. We'll talk more about Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Two more bad decisions, two more dark and frowning providences. And so this brings us to the fifth one. is It's messed up marriages Messed up marriages. This is a dark and frowning providence that, that we have to live with at times. Why do I say that the marriage to the Moabites was messed up? Why was it a wrong decision? Well, we've already noted that the Moabites were enemies of God. They, they, Deuteronomy 23 verse 3 forbid the entrance of a Moabite into the assembly of God's people. Now there are no passages in the Old Testament or in the Mosaic law where you could go to and say that marriage to a Moabite was, was strictly forbidden. But it's clear from, from the revelation that we see in Scripture that this was a no-no. This was not a good idea. When Abraham sends Abimelech to find a wife for Isaac, he, he, he says and asks, asks Abraham, what if, I, what if I can't find a woman for her from among our own people? Can I take him to other lands and look there? And Abraham says no. It's not an option. He will not marry a foreign wife. You have Esau, who's just kind of the consummate rebel. He marries foreign wives, and it just breaks his parents' hearts. you got Samson, and he just doesn't seem to have much of a brain. And he sees this Philistine girl, and he's like, Ugh, ugh, daddy, me want her. And and again, Manoah just crushes him to see his son. Live like this and marry outside of Israel. So, so we know from biblical examples, we see from later revelation that, that marrying the Moabite women was not a good decision. But what do we know about decisions and the bad decisions and the providence of God? We've seen this already. That, that they, they maintain moral responsibility for that decision and yet God still uses it for His purposes. You know, let I me mean, just... I feel like I need to say a little, couple side notes here. One, this passage does not support any kind of racist idea that is propagated at times that ethnically mixed marriages are wrong. We are not Israel. We are in a different dispensation. We are the nations. Most of us are kind of mutts anyway, ethnically. This is the mixed marriage ethnically is beautiful in God's sight, and I hope that we have many such in our congregation. For years to come, and I know we do already. That, that's not to say it won't be challenging in our culture, but don't limit prospects for marriage by race, ethnicity. Let God's Word be what governs you as you think about what makes a spouse a, a godly husband or wife. But secondly, it, it is important to marry in the faith. To not, to, to marry outside of the faith is sin. So young people, let me just talk to you real quick, however young. <laughs> Don't even entertain the possibility of dating or courting or going out with or whatever the word is today, an unbeliever. Let me see how not friends who are unbelievers. Don't even entertain it. Because don't, don't leave the door open for you to quote, fall in love with them and set aside God's word and his wisdom. Your heart, your emotions will be caught up in that and you will lose wisdom. And and as we've seen, God's providence can override bad decisions. Yes. What you intend for disobedience, God can use for good. But that is not an excuse to ignore what God has spoken. We cannot live according to the secret counsel of God. We cannot live our lives trying to interpret providence. Well, maybe God wants to use my sin for greater good. No. No. You can't go like that. If God chooses to turn a bad decision around for His purposes, He has that prerogative. But but the, the, the thing that we have to go on is the written word. This is what you and I are accountable to. So this is what we look to. But, so we're accountable for violating and the revealed will of God. We don't know what God is trying to do. And so this is what we keep. So these two boys... Sickly and wasting away, got married to his two Moabite women. What of weddings? What weddings those must have been. Do you sickly take Orpah? Uh, bad decisions. I mean, there's other places we could go where we see this God overriding this. In, in famously in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, where Joseph says to his brothers, "Remember that bad decision you made, selling me into slavery." You, know, you intended it for evil. But God, God intended it for good. So, there's plenty of examples of it in Scripture, even related to marriage. We talked about Samson earlier in Judges 14. He sees the Philistine girl, wants to marry her. His dad says, Don't do that, son. You don't want to marry her. She's not from our people. Verse 4 says, Manoah, his father, did not know that this was of the Lord. So, see, Proverbs very stated very simply, Proverbs 69, a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. So even the bad decisions of man fall under the category of, of dark and frowning providence of God in some way. Verse 5, Lo and behold, no surprise, with names like this, sickly and wasting away die. And both Melon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Two more funerals. This is not fiction. You, this is not a parable. This is a true story. You think of all that Naomi has gone through up to this point, and now here she is. Two more tombstones. She's lost her husband. Lost her sons. Now, this unbelievable grief. But it's not just sadness. That's enough. But this, this represents absolute destitution for her. The writer of Ruth shows Naomi's destitution, and you see it in verse 5. The writer, the narrator here, just drops her name. See it? He drops her personal name, simply calls her the woman. It says she's not only lost her family, but she's lost her identity. She's lost her name. It's it's as deep and as dark and as low and and far into the pit as she can possibly go at this point. She says, the woman. It's gone. She's destitute. And that's the sixth frowning providence here. It's just absolute destitution. As a widow without sons, Naomi, Naomi was in the worst possible condition she could have been in in that ancient culture. There were no federal programs to help her out. So when her sons died, all hope of sustenance, all hope of inheritance, all hope of anything perished with them. She was completely alone, in a sense. (laughs) But here's what we'll see. God in His eternal purpose, see, providence, all things under His control. He appointed a Moabite girl. And a kinsman redeemer, Boaz, who we haven't met yet, but we will. <coughs> to be in the line of Messiah. So all these bad decisions, all these frowning providences, all, God is working. And in fact, go ahead and turn to the last couple of verses of Ruth. Let's turn over a page or two. Last verses of Ruth. Also, I, my, my mom, I've shared this before. She, was, she always read the last page of a book before she read the first page. So that's kind of woven into me. Ruth chapter 4, verse 21. Salmon fathered Boaz. And by this time, Ruth is Boaz's wife. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. And we can finish the genealogy, can't we? Because to David, in his line, there is eventually born the son of David, the Messiah. Jesus Christ, and God in His eternal purpose wanted this Moabite girl named Ruth and a man named Boaz to be the parents who would end up bringing about the Messianic line. And and why? I have no idea. I have no idea. Is it deep in the unfathomable minds of God's wisdom that He He has wrought this plan? But one thing is clear: the sovereign providence of God orchestrated the whole symphony. Even the dark and minor notes, he he put together the whole mosaic. He wove together this entire tapestry. Even the ugly parts of life, we get to see it unfold in this book. Friends, listen. We do not d- deny the awfulness of political upheaval, and of social disorder. It's real and it's bad. We, we don't downplay the, 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 the loss inflicted by famines and disasters. We don't, we don't minimize the pain of bad decisions. We don't, we don't remove the responsibility of twisted morality that wreaks havoc on lives of people. We don't mute the pain of death. We don't minimize the distress of extreme poverty and destitution. But we do recognize by faith, that the invisible hand of providence, we we know that God governs the microcosmic details of life as He's working out His macrocosmic purpose for all things. He's in it. I I didn't. I thought about throwing an image on the screen, but you've seen these pictures before, though. Kind of can you see it or do you see it? And so you have this. Just messed up collage. You may be a collage of tiny little pictures. And, but put together it's supposed to reveal this this larger image. And, and you know are you, can you see it. Some people can see it. Some people can't. I never can see those things. I, I, I don't think any of you can see those things. I think you just tell me you can. It's this big conspiracy. And so I didn't want to put one on the screen. And feel like an idiot. Because you can all see it. But I can't. And, and all I see is chaos. When I see those pictures. I don't know. Why my eyes can't focus on that? But listen, it takes the it takes eyes of faith to see this mishmash, the chaos of life, and, and yet to know that the the invisible hand of providence is ruling, governing, Lord seated on His throne. It's not out of it's not out of control. God is moving. That's why you and I can stand on Romans eight twenty eight and, and affirm with conviction, even when the wheels of life have just fallen off we can say, you know what I, I believe that all things do indeed work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose and if you, if you don't believe in the God of the first five verses of Ruth then you have nothing to stand on when it comes to Romans 8.28 it's fairy dust you, you can hope that God will finagle some things to work together for good, but you cannot believe that God will work all things together for good but our God is in the heavens. And He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115. 3. Now sometimes with... I know, brothers and sisters. There are tears streaming down your face. That you cannot stop. And we have to simply say of the providence of God. Judge not the Lord by feeble sins. But trust Him for His grace. For behind... A frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And you can say sobbing. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The the bud may have a bitter taste. And it does, brothers and sisters, it doesn't it? Sometimes it's bitter. It's hard. But sweet will be the flower. How do you tend to respond? <laughs> And the troubles, and the crises of life? What is your attitude towards God in those situations? Maybe this is just a thought to take with you today. How, how does your perspective of God maybe need to be adjusted? And as we're looking, as we walk through this study in Ruth, if you affirm with your mouth and your mind, What we said in the statement earlier, that God's providence reigns in every situation, great and small. How does that belief give evidence in your daily living? How does it affect how you think and what you say and how you live and what you do? Please hear me. This is not theological fiction, this is real life stuff. This is a realistic faith. Trials we've gone through over the past year. And you've gone through corporately and individually. The the dark valleys that some of you are walking through right now. We were talking about some of them in our elder prayer time just before the service. This is not to minimize those things. But I've witnessed even, I mean for years, but particularly over the past year. I've witnessed people who deeply believe in this truth. Do they honestly tell God how much it hurts? Yes. Do they, do they, do they weep until there are no more tears? Yes. Do they, are, are they unable to make sense of it? Yes. But they're not assigning circumstances to random chance. Instead, they're trusting the sovereign hand of God. You can't convince me that the providence of God has no practical relevance in life. It means everything. Does it mean we can understand all the painful things? It doesn't, this truth is not a band-aid that we just kind of play it, plaster over our head and makes all the pain disappear? No. And as a side note, please don't use this truth and kind of slap someone across the face and say, you know, quit crying, get over it, God's going to work good from this. Romans 8, 20, 20, Don't you believe that? That is not how this is to be used. You can go when someone, the wheels have come off and you just go with them and you say, I'm so sorry. And you weep with them, sob with them. there will be a time and, 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 and I pray that that these five verses, even this morning, as we 're just getting started in this series, will be a balm to your soul this morning and, and, and if nothing else, it will be used by God to prepare you for something that 's coming. His doctrine affords unbelievable comfort to us i want to I want to read and i will be on the screen, the, the last words of that Belgic Confession. We didn't read this earlier, but, he, he, but it it is saying this, that the doctrine of God's providence affords us unspeakable consolation, since we are taught thereby that nothing can befall us by chance, that by the direction of our most gracious and heavenly Father, who watches over us with a paternal care, keeping all creatures so under His power that not a hair of our head, for they are all numbered, nor a sparrow can fall to the ground without the will of our Father, in whom we do entirely trust, being persuaded that He so restrains the devil and all our enemies that without His will and permission they cannot hurt us. That's our God. And I don't know what you're enduring today. Maybe you're here and you've got smiling providences and we're going to see a lot of those and starting next week really but particularly in chapter two, chapter 2 but in a congregation this size there are things I know of and there are situations I probably have no clue about and you're, you're walking through the valley and I urge you to recognize that these are dark and frowning providences of God behind it though God hides a smiling face he is an expert at making beauty from ashes he is he, he wants to make he wants to bring about greater eternal beauty in your life. Let's pray. Father, I, I ask God that um, you you that your spirit would move. Your spirit you is the comforter. And so we pray for the comforter to work. And whatever sorrows have been carried in here today, I pray that they would be soothed, not by feelings, but by deeper faith in you. And and so so work in us, God. As we sing now, may we are singing to you and as we sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Maybe we're struggling to say these things and to mean these things that we're about to say, but I pray that the ministry of the body would be evident today as we hear others sing these words with conviction, and you would use it in in our hearts today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.